Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Supplemental. Ever since the world began, Basil's Hexameron and the best, worst sermon ever preached. Last week, we saw an example of Basil's rhetorical genius in his Sermon to the Rich. While the message he preached was a hard one, especially to those named in the title, Basil brought all of his rhetorical skill and theological acumen to bear on his point. He knew his message and proclaimed it well. And that surely makes for a good sermon. Which makes it even more interesting that Basil also preached what must go down in history as one of the worst sermons ever. After all, one of the things that makes a bad sermon bad is when you had high hopes because you knew the preacher was really, really good. So today I want to take us on a short journey through the homiletical hot mess, which goes by the name of the Hexameron. Hexameron refers to the six days of creation, which was the topic of Basil's sermon. This was something of its own genre in the ancient world. You preached on the six days of creation, recounting all of God's marvelous works and deeds until finally, BAM! You reach the climax of all that creating, the beginning of humankind itself. Basil set up his work to continue in that venerable tradition. But I should probably stop referring to that work in the singular, because Basil didn't preach one sermon. Now that was common enough, there were six days of creation, so people might justifiably expect one sermon per day of creation, and you preached over the course of a week. Basil went above and beyond and preached nine sermons. They took him six days to deliver, and in several of those sermons he apologizes for preaching from dawn until dusk. You are probably beginning to see why I'm not just going to read these sermons to you like I did last time. You are probably also beginning to understand why this deserves to be on a worst sermons of all time list. And the time management problems start early. Basil gets going, and like so many preachers do when they get inspired, he immediately falls behind schedule. His first sermon is supposed to be about the first day of creation. What gets created on the first day? Light, which is then separated from the darkness to make night and day. So, what does Basil talk about? Not that. No, instead, Basil gets hung up on the first five words of Genesis. In the beginning, God created. He spends a long time extolling how awesome God is, and how God created the world from nothing, not out of some kind of primeval material goo, like the pagans think. He then rather charmingly starts interrogating really deep theological questions like, what does the earth rest on? Does it rest on water? If so, then why hasn't the earth sunk through the water? The earth is, like, super heavy. Does it rest on more earth, then? Well, then what does that earth rest on? So clearly the answer is that we should just rejoice that God holds up the earth somehow and move on secure in the knowledge of our faith. Thus ends sermon number one. Basil does finally get to the creation of light in the middle of sermon number two, preached the evening of that same day. He talks a lot about light and how fantastic it is and how it just makes everything look so much nicer, you know? Then, like a college freshman after trying an illicit substance for the first time, 
and having just gotten out of his freshman philosophy class, Basil talks about the connection between light and, like, time, you know? Just like, like, whoa. Time is, is nothing more than a measure of how long the sun takes to move around the world. But also the Bible talks about an eighth day of creation that's, that's not part of the normal week and revolutions of the sun. What is that about? Well, maybe the eighth day symbolizes, like, like eternity and stuff. Super rad. Thus ends day one of Basil's sermonizing. The people went home, presumably a little confused at the way the day had unfolded. And Basil knew how to read a room, because he begins day number two talking about how he knows that people have to get to work, so he's going to keep it shorter this time. But, but don't worry, folks. The time you lend to God is never wasted. It's always repaid with interest. Here is a free preaching tip. If you ever find yourself telling your audience, your time is never wasted listening to me, you know, then you are probably wasting their time. And waste it, Basil does, on all sorts of diversions. First, he has to refute the pagan philosophers, who say there's only one sky realm and not multiple. Then Basil goes on to tell us that just because the sky looks round to us doesn't mean it has a round top. I mean, look at a dome building. The roof is flat even if the ceiling is round. Actually, that was probably a good homiletical strategy. In every church, there are older men who don't know how to express their love of the place except by talking about the building and where that strange new leak is coming from. Those dudes were probably eating this stuff up, murmuring about their favorite building contractors in the pews. Basil then further endears himself to the homeowner crowd by comparing the sky to a giant water filter system. Basil believed that above the sky, in that region we now think of as outer space, was vast amounts of water. Why? Well, because in the book of Genesis, it talks about God using the sky to separate the waters above from the waters below. Now, God didn't want all that water above on earth because then we'd be damp all the time and couldn't use fire or get our cell phones to work and stuff. Very inconvenient. So God invented the sky to keep the heavier, earthier water down and shoot the rest of the stuff back up into the outer heavens. Very nifty. Okay, that brings us to day number three, sermon number four. Now, you know what happens on day number three. The waters under heaven get gathered together in one place, and the earth appears. Basil spends most of the sermon talking about how this is possible. Because doesn't water naturally gather together in the lowest place? Well, then why, why did God need to command it? Well, we don't know if water obeyed the laws of gravity at the moment of creation, so maybe God just commanded it to fall to the lowest place, and it's been doing that ever since. So, yeah, think about that, maybe, Basil says. He then notes that God saw all this was good and rhapsodizes about how awesome the oceans are and how they gild all the isles. But Basil has once again not gotten around to everything on the third day of creation, which means we have to buckle in for sermon number five about the creation of the plants. Most of this sermon is just Basil talking about how great plants are. Seriously, you guys, there are plants of every kind. Every kind. They have such different leaves and colors and uses. Maybe some of them are poisonous to humans, but they are useful to other animals. After all, creation is not all about us. Those plants are perfectly fine. You have enough sense to keep away from the bad ones, so just use that God-given common sense and let them mind their own business. Basil, it turns out, is a plant guide. 
he really just loves all the plants out there. One imagines him composing this sermon in a veritable forest of greens that he keeps at home, telling all his best one-liners to his philodendron. He probably named his philodendron Phil. Everybody does. That being said, there is also a genuinely moving moment in this sermon, and I can't help but share it with you. Here's what Basil says, and I quote, I want creation to fill you with so much admiration that everywhere, wherever you may be, the least plant may bring you to the clear remembrance of the Creator. If you see the grass of the fields, think of human nature, and remember the comparison of the wise Isaiah. All flesh is grass, and the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. Truly the rapid flow of life, the short gratification and pleasure that an instant of happiness gives a man, all wonderfully suit the comparison of the prophet. Today he is vigorous in body, fattened by luxury and in the prime of life, with complexion fair like the flowers, strong and powerful and of irresistible energy. Tomorrow he will be an object of pity, withered by age or exhausted by sickness. End quote. It's a moving image worthy of Basil's best preaching. Basil is a plant guy, but before he's a plant guy, he's a God guy, and he is able to see in his little green friends a mirror of the deepest truths about human existence. But this isn't an episode about how good a preacher Basil is, we already know that. It's an episode about how bonkers this entire sermon series is, so let's move on to sermon number six. If he had kept up the pace, Basil would be about done, ready to climactically end things with a discussion of humankind. But he didn't, so instead we're still piddling around on day number four of creation with the creation of the sun and moon. And Basil is in no hurry to move faster. He spends some time talking about how the sun and moon can shine when light has already been created apart from them, then about how the astrologers are dumb and wrong and people really need to stop listening to them. Then he talks a bit about how wonderful the sun is and how people think it's so small, but it, it's not. It's definitely, like, way bigger than it appears, you guys. And just look how much light it gives compared to the other stars. It's definitely the biggest and best and greatest light. And the moon is pretty great, too. Even greater than both is the God who made and ordered them. Thus ends the sixth sermon. Basil is now beginning to close in on his goal as we get to the discussion of the living creatures. First up, of course, are the fish of the sea. Basil really likes the fish, so much so that he names each and every one of them. Like, seriously, I, I cannot emphasize how much of this sermon is just Basil naming all the different kinds of fish. At this point, his audience must have been getting pretty grumpy. You can just hear them muttering to each other. Come back, you said. This guy's a father of the church, you said. This sermon series has got to get better at some point, you said. I missed Aryan's sea shanty night at the pub just for this whole series. Ugh. Basil, perhaps feeling pressure to do something other than name fish, then tells us the lessons that we can learn from fish. Most fish feed on, well, other, smaller fish. And are humans so different? No, Basil says, and we should learn to mark well our own greedy and avaricious nature that would feed on our fellow humans with such disdain. Okay, that brings us to sermon number eight, 
we've got to be getting close now, right? We're going to talk about the creation of the human being now, right? Wrong. We are talking about animals. Basil is keen to tell us about dogs and cattle and sheep, and he's so excited until he pauses in the middle of his sermon. And then he begins to apologize to his audience. Because in all his excitement to talk about the animals of the land, he has accidentally skipped the birds. Oh, this simply will not do. So he backs up and goes over all the birds. Now, it's fitting to talk about the birds after the fish, because if you think about it, birds are the fish of the sky. Yeah, yeah. Fish swim through water with their little fins. Birds fly through the air with their wings. Birds, the fish of the sky. Both are proof of God's marvelous artifice and wisdom. The birds also have many lessons to teach us about virtue, just like the fish. Turtle doves love their mates so much that they stay single after they die. And Basil wishes humans would value marital fidelity as highly as these birds. Eagles cruelly push one of their young out of the nest after it's born, but ospreys adopt the young and raise it as their own. Be like the osprey, Basil says, and not like the eagle. By the way, as far as I can tell, Basil is wrong about the biology of this. Ospreys do not raise eagle chicks, and eagles don't usually push a chick out of their nest unless in desperation. Pelicans are the ones who do that. Perhaps Basil was misinformed by an observer. Basil also talks about how vultures often give birth without sexual congress, so that means nobody should be skeptical about Christ's birth from a virgin. Again, this is not true. Basil appears to have been misinformed by his reporters about the nature of vulture pregnancies. But he is just so excited about the whole thing that I'll give him a pass on it. And with that, Basil is on to sermon number nine. He has to cover both the creation of the animals of the land and humankind in a single day, in a single sermon. He has to bring this meandering overtalk series to an end with a bang. Can he do it? Yes. Will he do it? No. Seriously, Basil mostly just focuses on the animals in this sermon and what we can learn from them. While animals don't have our capacity for reason, they often do a better job taking care of themselves than we do for our own bodies and souls. And animals love family. The lambs know their mothers even in the midst of a giant herd. The dog loves their human. Dogs, after all, are unfailingly grateful for their food. And dogs can track animals by scent that even the most seasoned huntsmen would consider lost. Then we get to elephants. Basil spends a truly astonishing amount of time explaining to us why elephants have such long trunks, all to tell us what we already know, namely that the trunks are so the elephant can get food from the ground without having to, you know, bend down and stuff. And then, finally, Basil stuffs in something about the creation of humanity at the very, very end of his sermon. He acknowledges that maybe he has been dawdling a bit too much, and I quote, but I see that for a long time you have been asking me for an account of the creation of man, and I think I can hear you all cry in your hearts, we are being taught the nature of our belongings, but we are ignorant of ourselves, end quote. On the sixth day of being a captive audience to this patriarch's horticultural and zoological ramblings, his audience had plenty to cry about besides their own ignorance, 
but again, we'll give Basil a pass here. So what does Basil actually say about human beings? Only two things. That they are really hard to know, and that God says, let us make human beings in our image. He then goes on a tangent about how the first person plural indicates a plurality in God, which means the Son is definitely a part of the Godhead, and those dumb anomians are all wrong. Could he explain how we are in the image of God? Well, he sure could, but oh, whoops, look at the time, folks. That's the end of our sermon series. Hope you liked it. Come back for more next time. I have spent this amount of time going over Basil's Hexameron, in part because I think it humanizes Basil, who is otherwise such a legendary figure. Basil was a brilliant preacher who could bring down the rafters with his words. He was also a human who was perfectly capable of forgetting the assignment, stumbling around in the middle of it, and then rushing through the conclusion. Even the best of preachers has a worst sermon. Basil was no exception. But if this was Basil's worst sermon, it was his worst sermon for one of the best possible reasons. I'm indebted to theologian David Clow for pointing this out. The reason that Basil meanders and forgets his point so much is because he is so captivated by the world around him. He loves the sun and moon, plants and animals, and he just can't help but linger over them in wonder. I get the sense that if Basil were a kid today, there is nowhere he would rather go for fun than the zoo, observing all the animals and how they interact with the world around them. There is a kind of blissful self-forgetfulness here. Because if there's one thing this sermon series makes clear, creation is not, in fact, just about humans. It's about the whole world that God has made, and there is enough to captivate us, to hold our attention, and to teach us about God, that we could spend our whole lives just taking it in. In our present age of ecological crisis and deforestation, surely there is something worth recovering in Basil's sense of wonder. It's worth recovering even, perhaps especially, if it snarls up our production cues, deadlines, and sclerotic notions of value. Basil spent so much of his career arguing that God, true God, grade A bona fide divinity, became a human man in Jesus of Nazareth. But he also rejoiced that God, true God, the only begotten word, made everything besides humanity, too. Perhaps keeping in mind the peace of birds in flight, or the gratitude of a dog, or the shimmering beauty of a fish scale, will give us some measure of calm as we put up with the eternally argumentative humans that have populated our road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.